I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And uh, what you just heard was probably different intro music because I'm considering switching from Better Than Ezra to Shine Down. And by the time I make that decision, it'll have happened before this. And so I'm kind of just telling Peter for now. But today, we are, uh, he doesn't care about no, that. No, you're just messing uh, with the time. I mean, we're at, we are talking about time today in a, in a, in a strange sense. Uh, but I'm, I was just flabbergasted by the commentary after the fact that is actually before the change that's going to happen. So the song with the best intro of any song probably that I've ever heard in my life is Shine Down, I'm Not Alright. And uh, I'm thinking about making that our intro. Well, let's, so the let's, listener will have already heard that. We've got to try it out this week then. Okay. So decision made. You just heard Shine Downs on No All Right. Uh, all right. So um, we didn't plan on talking about that. I just thought of it when I hit the record button. And so today we are planning to talk about revelation, nature, praise. That's right. In that order, no deviation. Maybe. No, we'll, we'll <laughs> deviate. Um, today's lectionary. Well, Sunday's lectionary readings offer this pericope from the book of Revelation. It is Revelation 5, 11 through 14. And if you go to one of Peter's two churches, you will hear it this week because he's preaching from there. I'm not. I'm going to jump into the, the lectionary waters because I've been out of them for a while. And I'm going to be in Acts for the next... Through the first week of June. The theme is getting into action. I saw it that is. on your church it's on, sign. It's on our sign. So I'm also preaching a theme. I'm preaching a revelation theme. Welcome. Welcome. So, so that means you're... I'm following the lectionary, but the lectionary actually lines up, I think, six or seven passages from Revelation. The so. beauty of the lectionary is that you can find themes in it. Yeah. They're there. Yeah. And so um, if you're a thematic pastor, then you can always use that. Uh, sometimes it doesn't lend itself to what you want to do and you want to break from it, and I, I do that a lot. Uh, I will deviate again from it um, in in June after the first week and then probably come back to it in July. It, anyway, it, you can just do what you want. But um, I have to say that this choice of mine to do a Revelation theme over multiple weeks is not my choice. It was not original choice. I stole it. Uh, blatantly from Jocelyn Schaefer, who's also part of our lectionary group and preaches at Grace Church in the Mountains. Her sermon is probably better than mine, so you can go over there if you want to. My services are 9.30 and 11. <laughs> I'm really selling this. But uh, I felt like I needed to do this because for three years I've been preaching mostly from the gospel. Uh-huh. And I told myself before I became a preacher that I wouldn't be that preacher that only preaches from the gospel. It lends itself, though, so you have to really, really try. Yeah. So what I've, what I've started doing is I will do one series from the New Testament and then one from, one from the Old. Mm. And that forces me away yeah. from sticking yeah. to because I mean, cause, I mean it, it's like the preacher version of a Sunday school answer. You just Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. This happened to Jesus. That happened to Jesus. People are so familiar with the story of Jesus that it's just easy to jump into any place along the story and fill in more character development about who this person is. Or one of the things that I like to do is take a well-known story and yeah. be like, I bet you didn't know this. I mean, you know, and, and reframe it and yeah. get people to look at it a different way because I like doing that. 
mm-hmm. uh, and it challenges me. And so the Gospels lend themselves to that. Of course, so does the Pentateuch. And we are, haven't even touched the verses we're supposed to talk about today. No, we haven't. I guess that's okay, though. Well, so what echoes in my mind is what one of my professors once said, which is that in order to make disciples of all nations, we have it takes time to make a disciple. Mm-hmm. And just like you feed an animal, which we are talking about animals today, yeah, uh, Christians are fed too. And it's important for Christians to be fed a proper diet, a proper diet of prayer and a proper, di- proper diet of scripture. And that's kind of what the lectionary attempts to do is give a good sample. You got the salad bar, you got your, your food groups, you've got your Old Testament, your Psalms, your lessons, uh, sorry, your, your epistles and your gospel. But when we just dedicate ourselves to the gospel every Sunday, uh, you know, I'm worried that I'm deforming or malnourishing my Christian disciples that I'm trying to form. So that's what's, that's what's getting me into doing this, uh, this so t- preaching. So today we'll be in the salad dressing portion of the salad bar, which is the uh, eschatology. Sure. <laughs> and we will be jumping into Revelation. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll, we'll start talking about it. But okay. I agree with you about everything you said. The, the lectionary is a wonderful way to challenge yourself. And there are many preachers that only preach from the, from the lectionary. Mm-hmm. And then there are some like me who are like, well, I'll do it as often as I can, but sometimes I just got to do, do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Revelation 5, 11 through 14 says, Then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing. To the one seated on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's the end of the reading. Thank you for the uh, um, extra amen. Like the little John of today's... Yeah! yeah. Uh, <laughs> last week in church when I was reading Revelation... Uh, there were two or three amens in the in the pericope, mm-hmm. and when I said amen, people said amen, you know, wow. as if I had, was completing a, a prayer. And then I kept reading, and that was confusing. And then I said amen again, then nobody said amen the second. Did it time. shock you? Well, I was like, that's good. We should all say yeah. amen. I mean, we're we're saying amen to this scripture, and it doesn't matter if it's not in a prayer. It's... So a couple weeks ago, eh, maybe a month ago. I was preaching, and a little girl got baptized that day, and so, like, all our family was there. Yes. And they didn't know that we were just supposed to sit there and wait for the preacher to shut up. And so I asked a rhetorical question, and a teenage family member of this little girl answered it. And it took the sermon in a whole different direction, and it was wonderful. Yeah. And I wish that the rest of our well-trained church people would forget their manners more often because yeah. it was just it was magical but it's anyway. really it's it's really amazing to see a church that has been trained to respond and a pastor who is comfortable with that yeah 
And then it is really sad to watch a pastor who is uncomfortable with that preach to a church that has been trained to respond. They just get they just freeze when I someone no says idea something what to do with this. from yeah. the sanctuary. Uh, but it's just as sad to watch a pastor who is used to response preach to a bunch of people who are just blank icy stares. Yes. Right? Oh man, impress me. In divinity school with uh, a lot of a lot of my friends who are um, on their way to be reverends in in the in the black church. <laughs> I'll never forget, I mean, how many times I heard the line, I wish somebody here would help me out today. <laughs> and and the, the truth is that in, in, in predominantly white churches, nobody's helping the preacher out. No. no. Uh, <laughs> but, but then again, a lot of white preachers are not trained to expect that kind of help. So Yeah. yeah we enjoy it, though. Yeah. It, 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 it puts a smile. It puts a smile on my face. It, put, it warms my heart a little bit when someone says amen or... or Yes, Lord. And maybe it's a good thing that we brought that up because that's typically known as call and response. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we're seeing okay. in these verses that we've probably all now forgotten from Revelation. Because you have John of Patmos is witnessing these things. He looks and there's conversation going by, going on rather. There's songs of praise and then there's responses. And this seems like a biblical example of how one might hope a worship service is is conducted. That's passive, though. How one might hope to experience a worship service. Yeah, and that's a good point. I hadn't noticed that before. But you have, from verse 11, starting out, we've got angels and living creatures and elders numbering in the millions— or myriads, as your translation says, thousands upon thousands, they say pretty much the same refrain, worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, wealth, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Seven, which a number that comes up a lot in Revelation. Mm-hmm. And then in response, as you're saying, every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, everywhere, everything everywhere said, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and always. There's only four. Uh, yes, I know. So something happened with those extra three. Well, some of them were under the earth, like moles. And so they probably couldn't hear. So it's a little too quiet. Yeah. <laughs> they need to yeah. bump up the register. A little louder in the back. But I love that because, you know, what? when you have a call and response kind of song, and I've tried to leave my congregation some call and response songs, you have, uh, you have, either or antiphonal readings you may have heard of where one half of the congregation reads one verse and the other half of the congregation reads the uh, the other verse i've never heard of that yeah so i mean well you have responsive readings of psalms sometimes mm-hmm. right so uh, an antiphonal region a uh, reading rather is where instead of having a leader and everyone else a leader and all you have Left side of the sanctuary, right yeah. side of the sanctuary. Here's why that wouldn't work at First Baptist in Canton. Okay, tell me. Because on one Sunday, you'll have, like, everybody sit on the left side. And on the other, like, if our church was on a seesaw, it would always have one side way up in the air. Mm-hmm. And, like, so the next Sunday, mm-hmm. everybody sit on the right side. Yeah. And it's not that it's the same people all decided to switch sides. Everybody goes to their spots, yeah. but just that's just the way they show up for church. Is the church right. ever going to, looks like it's going to tip over? If they all came <laughs> too many people on at one the same side. time, I would be so happy and also shocked. That would be like the amen that I don't know how to respond to. Yeah. If, if like, 
I guess somebody blew up the dam at Lake Chatug and they all showed up, then I mean I did I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I mean, just we, ear to ear, boy. We we've got we've got a little bit of uh, of sanctuary imbalance at my church too, uh, but it was intentional because we had few in number and. Now that COVID is not as much of a risk, it's hard to hear one another when we spread out so much when yeah. we're trying to sing. So somebody who has more authority than me in the church mm-hmm. said, everybody's going to sit together and we're going to sing so we can hear each other. And so now it looks like a chip, tr- church is about to fall over. Yeah. Anyway, I guess there's different ways of interpreting this passage and the call and response going on. It could be that the angels and the living creatures and the elders and the millions upon millions are the leaders and the creatures of the earth are the are the all. But I prefer to think of it as antiphonal. Mm-hmm. That there's not a hierarchy here. But they're all in they're all equals. Yes. They are all children of God, yes. creation. Yes, and they they just echo back and forth to one another. It's a, it's um, and and it's a it's sort of a, it's a it's a blessing. It's a good thing, and they kind of are egging each other on in yeah. a good way, right? And boosting the praise in this heavenly sanctuary. So, speaking of the praise, in this heavenly sanctuary, what we have here is not what we typically think of when we think of who praises God. Because hmm. when, we, when we read in a, a biblical something about praise, maybe it's a psalm or something, or if we think about what praise and or worship is, who do we think of as doing the praise or doing the worship? Mostly humans. Yeah, us. Yeah. Pretty much in every book besides Revelation, I would imagine that we would, we would think of mostly humans are yeah. doing the praising. And certainly when we put it in a modern context uh, or a practical context, if we imagine a church service, it's a ch- service that's full of human beings. Right. And yet, the vision given to John hmm. shows that there's no reason to be that selective. Yeah. That all of creation, every creature at least, I don't know if that means plants or not, well, I think so. I was thinking about how beautiful it is. Somebody brought a lilacs that had just bloomed from there to church and put them on the altar last Sunday. And and the, the smell of the lilacs filled the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a form of praise. That's not only the praise of the gardener who, who, who grew and harvested the lilacs, but also the way that this plant praises God is with this beautiful aroma. Which is, if you look at Old Testament worship, you always, not always, but you constantly, no, not constantly, I've got to correct myself. You often read about a fragrance pleasing to or detestable to mm-hmm. God. Good Lord, yes. And I believe that uh, uh, the church fathers and mothers often made a big deal, I'm not sure which ones exactly, about trying to become the fragrance of Christ. And so, yes, uh, I think plants and animals do praise their creator. Mm-hmm. In fact, and this is, I think, where I might be going with this sermon, um, I have personally come to the conclusion that, that I do not want to participate in a religion 
that is not already the religion that the trees and the plants and the lilac shrubs and the animals are already participating in. That is to say, I believe that God created all life, mm -hmm. and I, I want to believe that when I look out at the beauty of the creation, that I will see and I will hear ways in which all creation is already praising God, not just in Revelation, whatever time period this is set in. Uh, we read that it says everything everywhere, and I would say all the time, mm -hmm. which is the name of a new movie coming out, by the way, about the multiverse. So Wonderful. <laughs> anyway, that's how I think creation is praising God. Everywhere, everything, all the time is already praising God, and that's what I want to participate in with our human worship services. So before we talk about us participating in worship service, what does it look like mm. for everything, specifically things that aren't human, to praise God? Yeah. You talked about a lilac smell. Yeah. But like, what about your dog? What about an ant? Well, there's a, uh, there's, a, there's a farmer that I'm a big fan of. I'm very fond of this farmer. His name is... You're a fond farmer fan? Yes. His name is Joel Salatin. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've heard of him. He's up in Virginia. And he has um, sort of pioneered a style of farming called, which has a terrible long name called Management Intensive Rotational Grazing. Mm -hmm. But basically the concept is you the the management part of the grazing operation is intensive meaning you're moving the animals either daily or every few days mm -hmm. onto new pasture and the paddocks are smaller and so he's got cows that move into a small paddock they'll eat it down but they won't destroy the, the plants that are there he'll move them to a new pasture then he'll move chickens in behind them yeah. or turkeys or whatever and then he'll move those out and he'll let the grass grow and recover and his goal is for a chicken to do what a chicken does best, mm -hmm. which is scratch and peck. And when he waits until the, this is going to be graphic, people, sorry. He waits until the maggots from the flies, the larvae from the flies, have gotten to such a, a state in their growth on the cow dung mm -hmm. that his chickens will love them. Like they're going to eat them. Yes. And so they're going to scratch and peck all that manure and put it and basically integrate it. It's a chicken tractor. Into, yes, yeah. into, into the grass. And then the grass is going to love that. And then, then the cows are going to come back and eat that fresh grass, and they're going to love that grass. And so the idea is when I think that when animals are flourishing, when a chicken is, become, is being its best chicken self, and when our dogs get to go chasing down smells mm -hmm. and and barking at intruders and running and chasing things. Rolling in dead animals. Yeah. Whatever they want to do. When they're being their best selves, and, and we see this I watched too. my dog four times Monday. Go ahead. Yeah, but we smile when we see an animal getting to be exactly what this animal was born to be, you know. Uh, there's joy that we can actually perceive in nature, and I believe that that's how all creation praises God. So, uh, in short, the harm, the harmony of creation existing as it was created to exist. Yeah, and flourishing. Yeah, right. Which I think the the assumption is, if it's allowed to exist as its creator intended, 
it will flourish. Yes. Here's the question that that makes me kind of dwell upon. It's one thing to say this when you're surrounded by the beauty of creation. Mm. What about when you look around and all you see is ugliness? All you uh, see is suffering, concrete, and or the concrete jungle. I think you can find nature in there anyway. But like, if you're surrounded by suffering, poverty, um, drought, yeah, then, then how, how do you or do you, can you animal abuse? That's another one. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, uh, well, I mean, if all creation can praise God, then all creation can lament, too. Mm-hmm. And I believe that we see that in nature. I see that, you know, I'm not Descartian. I don't believe that animals are automatons, machines that don't feel. I believe animals do feel. I believe that they suffer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this is where the rubber really hits the road for what I might, well, some might call a Christian animist perspective, which is one that I kind of identify with is that if all creation can praise and all creation can lament and if the psalms that we read where the psalmist is cursing his or her enemies mm-hmm. uh, can can be spoke or can be prayed by all of creation then you know we have we ought to worry that if these animals are here represented in the throne room of God that perhaps that some of them are Cursing us. Excellent segue. Because we talked about this before we started recording. We are looking at a snapshot of all creation praising God. And the question you asked is, what are they saying about us? Yeah. What, not that we should put ourselves in the position of God, but, it, but from their perspective. Yeah. Especially a pet or, or livestock. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we aren't the creator but we're stewards for cows we kind of are but we we are the providers right. or not mm-hmm. um, we are that which brings protection or that which brings harm mm-hmm. and so when creation gets to the throne room what do they say about us mm-hmm. do they say God this, this is the way you said it so feel free to not let me say it if you want to go ahead do they say, God, humans have been such a blessing. Thank you for creating them. Hmm. Or do they say, God, I agree with you in Exodus. I'm sorry you ever created them. Mm-hmm. Or Genesis with the flood, for instance. I think it's an open question. And, I, you know, um, that's why t- the, the timing of this passage really matters. I believe that this vision that he's having gives me hope when I imagine that this this worship service going on around the heavenly throne room is something that is at the culmination of all time. It gives me hope because it, it leads me to believe that eventually humans will understand our part in, in this grand scheme of things and we will work to seek the flourishing of all life such that creation can actually praise, that all the animals above the earth on the earth, below the earth, and in the, the sea, sea. Yeah. can praise God. So, to me, that then asks, or begs the question, what do we have to do to get there? Well, I was actually thinking while you were talking, because that's rude, and I have Go to ahead. admit that, but I did. Go ahead. 
What are how, you did, about? how does this compare to Revelation 21? Hmm. Because I think if we just focus on the throne room, then we shortchange the fact that we're not going to get to perfection, mm-hmm. that it is God who is proclaiming that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth yes. in Revelation 21. Yes. So do we just w- wash our hands of it and say, well, we can't get there? Or do we have to experience the brokenness to eventually see um, creation return to its, in- its intended state? Or... Should we start working to prepare creation to be as God intended it, as close as we can, Mm. in the meantime, while hoping that God will deliver Revelation 21? Yeah. Or, has God already tried it and we messed it up so bad that we've already screwed up new heaven and new earth? This is, we're tiptoeing close to a millennial debate, millennialist debate. We're not going there. We we have we have a previous podcast I think in which we talk about that. We so we're did. not we're not going to go. Don't to forget that now. you can always be an amillennialist. Go ahead. But I think what what is really important for us to talk about and and relevant to the to the passage here is when you think about Revelation twenty one, the new Jerusalem descending, new heaven and new earth, a new creation. Uh, that that is the culmination, right? And I kind of, we jumped into this passage without looking at the context. Mm -hmm. So what is the context? The context is that John is weeping because no one was was able to open the seal. Uh, And that that comes to us from right at the beginning of chapter 5. It says, I saw a powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice. This is John speaking. Um, He saw this powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. So I began to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. So clearly the time frame of this, you know, and Revelation has its own time scale that I don't know if it anyone... It is out of space time. Everyone has, nobody has figured this out, right? Yeah. So we can't, we can't say this is going to happen tomorrow or it happened already or it's happening in 20 years or whatever, but it is before Revelation 21. Mm-hmm. Objectively so. Um, at least as far as we can tell. So John's weeping because no one's able to open the scroll. And he really wants to see what's inside it. And then one of the elders says to him, don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has emerged victorious so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, so John looks at what this elder has described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He obeys and looks for a specific thing. Yes. But then, when... It actually comes time to open the scroll, which is the beginning of chapter 6, right after the passage we read. He says, Then I looked on as the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And so you have this difference, which is uh, visible in other parts of Revelation as well, where John is asked to look at one thing, but when he looks, he sees something different. So you have expectation versus reality. Exactly. Yes. And 
I wonder what you make of this lion-lamb distinction. Well, I don't know that it's a distinction because if you want to see it this way, Jesus is characterized as both. Mm. So within him is both the lion and the lamb. Mm -hmm. And so the same character opens the seal, bringing with him his lionness and lambness. When I when you think of a lion, what do you think of? You think of power. Power. Yeah. I think of uh, danger. Yes, I think of an animal tearing open a, an antelope on the the plains Serengeti. of Africa. Yes. But what do you think about when you think of a lamb? I think honestly, I think of uh, the field on the way to Meadowbrook across the street from the intersection at Skyline and whatever that other road is. Because uh, every mo- every road. morning, every yeah. morning I see lambs. Yeah, well, sheep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but generally speaking, one would think of helplessness. Yeah, yeah. Soft, fluffy, skittish. Yeah, uh, cute until you look close. Yeah, and they're kind of creepy looking. <laughs> Weird yeah. square pupils. You know, I've been thinking. This is a tangent, so you can cut me off if you want to. But let's uh, talk about square pupils. You have a right to. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, so you know, it just seems to me that the the reason that grassy lawns became popularized was probably because of some sort of nostalgia for verdant meadows in Britain that were probably grazed by sheep or cows. Maybe. And then people decided it's too much work to have sheep and cows. We'll use lawnmowers instead. Yes, maybe. maybe. I don't know. You ever look at... This is crazy. <laughs> You've been to the Biltmore Estate? Uh, I've not been into oh, it. Oh my goodness! Uh, I'm not talking about into uh, it. So I boycotted at, it at yeah the Biltmore because it's too opulent. Yeah, well I can't I, stand going there because uh, of that. Yeah, I just I just don't feel attracted to see how rich people are living. All right, so okay, it is in our backyard, yes. and eventually someone's going to give you a pass. So that's they did that to us, and we went. Yeah, and we took a at the time four year old, and that was a nightmare. But, um. What I noticed more than any of the junk inside the house is this massive lawn. And it's been there since before lawnmowers. Mm-hmm. So, like, you got somebody out there with, like, scissors or something. A scythe, probably. Something. Or sheep. Getting it all uniformly cut. Or, or maybe. Well, sheep, the problem with sheep is that they, they take the roots, too, right? Well, it depends. With management intensive rotational oh grazing. <laughs> how, do you, you gonna, how are you going to tell the sheep not to? Electric fences. Oh, wait, this would be before electric fences. <laughs> In the 1800s? Shepherds. Okay. Well, with big sticks. All right, so what were we even talking about? Um, the com- we were talking about the lion, the lion versus the lamb. All right, right. Yes. Or the lion and the lamb. Yes. Because I, I'm not saying that Jesus is like the two-faced character from Batman or that he's you know, bipolar or something one, like that. One half of him is lion and the other half yeah, yeah, is I'm not lion. saying he's he turns like that. Around and he... I, I am saying that hum, humans have multiple natures within them. Mm. Humans have, even if you're not schizophrenic, and if you are, that's fine, but if you're not, even if you're not schizophrenic, we have multiple personalities. I guarantee you 
the me that is in the sanctuary on Sundays. I try not to be this way. Hmm. I try to be as authentic as possible. But probably you're going to get a different person there than you are when I'm at home. Yeah. When I'm relaxed and not on my guard and, and not quote-unquote on. Yeah. Uh, it's just how we are. We have different sides. and you, you know, Which court are you going to get? Which Peter are you going to get? In, in Jesus, you have the expectation of a conquering hero, the Lion of Judah. Mm-hmm. You also have the sacrificial lamb. Mm. You got all your Isaiah stuff. You got the cross. The the lamb led to slaughter. And they're not embodied mention, in the not same to person. The Passover, not to mention the Passover. The Passover lamb. The Paschal yes. lamb, as you yes. said earlier. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that it has to be diametrically opposed. Yes. I think that perhaps the expectation of the elder passed on to John look for this lion when John sees the same character that you know, Jesus who who the elder told him to look for in that line that's not the Jesus John encounters mm-hmm. he encounters the the more sacrificial the more uh, passive um, docile mm-hmm. version yes. of Jesus. Yes. But it's the same person. And it, as we'll read later perhaps in Revelation if you want to dive into it, it's kind of a creepy lamb. It's got seven horns and seven eyes. And it's also a slaughtered lamb, meaning it's got blood all over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's a lamb. And, and I think we need to remember that John is writing to these seven churches in Asia who are probably experiencing some kind of persecution, probably under Emperor Domitian. Around 96 AD is what I read. I'm trying to do my homework. And when you've got a people, a group of people who are being uh, persecuted by emperors who John's vision renders as beasts... Mm-hmm. To just allow that to go on and not do anything about it, that's not love. Mm-hmm. And so how does a loving God respond to, you know, God's children being persecuted and devoured by these beasts um, with rage? So that's kind of where I was headed with this. If we want to take this exact scene... Yeah. John watching Jesus open the scroll, or at least looking for him and then seeing him. You're making an assumption that it's Jesus, which true, true. I think John watching the lion slash lamb. Yes, open the it, scroll. It, it, it is. It probably is Jesus. Like I, I'm willing to say that, but it doesn't say that in the scripture right here. Okay. John watches. Yes. John expects the lion sees the lamb. Yes. If we want to lift that out of its context and place it in ours. And I don't mean like the thing that I tell my church not to do all the time, which is just assume it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But if we want to see what that might look like in our context, think about the fact that every human being who lives through a different life than every other human being 
needs to see a different Jesus. And one of the things that hit me the hardest when I was learning about different um, ways that we encounter Christ is that the same Christ or Lion Lamb character that people in America sing about mm-hmm. as being, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. You think about liberal sarcasm in your voice there, but yeah, there's plenty of it. <laughs> yeah. So the if, if you think about liberation theology, they depicted Jesus holding an AK-47. Hmm. Why? Because they needed liberation. Because that's the Jesus they expected. Hmm. The Jesus they thought they needed, they think in many cases they need, hmm. is the one who will come in with might and power and set them free. And so from the elders' perspective, they're expecting the lion, the power, the maybe even danger hmm. of this power. And essentially is going to overtake the challenge of opening the, the seal. Right. Whereas John doesn't see that. Yeah. I have a, I have a hypothesis here that just popped into my head. No idea whether it's valid or not, but it sounds to like, you know, perhaps it's that the elder looking upon Jesus really sees a lion. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if this is true about these these particular elders, but I believe that many of the elders who are gathered around the tr- throne are people are people who have been martyred already. And, and perhaps what a martyr needs is uh, an avenger. Uh-huh. But perhaps what John needs and what John's disciples need and the churches to whom he's writing, who are still living. What they need is not necessarily a, an avenger, but what they need is a paschal lamb. Mm-hmm. They, they they long for Jesus to be for them, the the one whose blood they can they can uh, cover themselves with or cover their doorposts with to protect them from the angel of death that seems always to be haunting them. Perhaps that's what John needs most in Jesus, and and that's what he sees. So if we encounter the Christ that we need to see and all creation praises God, then taking this out of just our perspective and putting into the perspective of all creation, what does creation need to see? That's what a, does the that's a big creation question. savior look like? It's a big question. I, I don't know the answer to that. And may, maybe that... You know, maybe our, maybe the reality is that as humans, we're limited in that way. We we in our will, ability to see. Yeah, in our ability to see Christ. You know, we can see Christ the way we need to see Christ. But I, I, I wonder if what if maybe creation sees Christ in a totally different way, but nevertheless, Christ is still the Savior of the entire creation. Well, if we want to get way out there. What if we Revelation takes us way out there? That's so true. We may as well true. just follow. What What if the if we general not generalize? What if we took the title Christ, which sounds to us like a person, even though it really means anointed one, mm-hmm. and made it just salvation, a concept. Mm. Because when humans need salvation, we see a human savior. Yeah. But 
the work of the cross and the Christ on the cross were all acts of God the Father. Mm-hmm. And in the Bible, it always, even you know, after the cross, it always talks about the salvation God the Father yes. gave to us. Yeah. And so perhaps um, the question is not, who is Jesus to the rest of creation? It is what is salvation? Mm-hmm. What does salvation look like right. to all creation? Yeah. I mean, I think to, to the chickens and the cows on Joel Salatin's farm, salvation looks like Joel Salatin. It looks like a human being who, who is so focused on what these animals desire and what would make them joyful, what would make them happy, what would seek their flourishing, that uh, that he gets it right. Yeah. You know, that, and if, if I can, you know, run with that, I would say that if we desire to bear the image of Christ to the creation, that our responsibility is to seek their flourishing. Mm-hmm which requires us to pay close attention, close attention to the creatures around us, the trees, the plants, the animals, and, uh, and the other human beings that around us, that, and, dis- and discern what it is they need in order to thrive and flourish. I think the, the rub is often when you think about other human beings. And I've often, I've, I've, I've lost sleep over this. So I want to live in a cleaner world. Mm. I want to live in a better world. Yeah. But I want people in developing countries to be able to get out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And often that involves exploitation of the world. At least as far as we know, given our limited knowledge yeah. and our history of industrialization. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that there's was something a, we got to wrestle with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a... There's a really interesting debate going on in in um, Brazil right now, because indigenous uh, people in the Amazon have been given large amounts of lands, or large amounts of land have been uh, set aside for the indigenous groups of people who live there. It's off just the, like we had tribal lands off the yeah. land, yeah, and they're not allowed to be developed. But these same indigenous groups. So this is the debate, so I, you know, I'm not going to generalize here, but some say that some of these indigenous groups or some members of these indigenous tribes are tired of being poor. They want to develop. And they see the rest of the world getting rich off of uh, uh, mining and uh, harvesting lumber mm-hmm. and drilling for oil. And they think, well, if this land has been set aside for us, we should be able to do that. That's the way to get wealthy. Then that's what we want to do because we're yeah. tired of being poor. Yeah. And that that brings you know this really. Th- that's just this really difficult challenge that we face as a species right now. Of like, you know, how how does the human species flourish? And how can we flourish in a way that doesn't just totally destroy our planet? I am not saying that we shouldn't try to find the answers but I am saying that in spite of our best efforts we may not be able to Mm. and that's why I'm so thankful for Revelation 21 Mm -hmm. because as much as I want to be able to experience 
what it's like to see these verses played out where everything is flourishing and everything is praising God, I realize that I am human. I realize that I am limited. And so perhaps that's why we have Revelation 21, which tells us that God ultimately, the, the only agent who can deliver perfection. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. It's so easy for us to say, well, if I, I can't do it, so I'll, I'll just wash my hands of it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's not where we want to go. It's, I'm, like, okay. A lot of things have come to light late, recently. And I, I was, it was probably the most scared I've been giving a sermon since I've been in Canton. I brought this up. Oh, gosh, like a month ago. A lot of the efforts that we make and they're well-intentioned, it turns out that we're just doing enough to where we can't see the problem. Mm-hmm. We think we're getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. But usually we're making it someone else's problem. Yeah. You know, if, if everything's electric, that's a lot of coal-fired stuff. You know, it, the, the, the electricity, the coal is not something I can see. The electric car is what I can see. Yeah. Um, now those kind of things. I'm not getting into this. I realize right now, that over the I, life I, of the thing, they do put out less. Large power plants yeah. are much more efficient than the little power plant that you drive around in your car, uh, but, especially my car. Okay. Anyway, uh, I, I want yes, yes. We sometimes, uh, I mean, we're trapped in this cycle of externalization, right? Yes. You know where we we do as much as we can, and I think the other thing that we do is. Uh, do enough so that it looks like we're doing something. Correct. And then the other part is we we do enough so that it doesn't look like it's a problem anymore. Or the ugliest part that I've seen is we do nothing except point out the flaws that other people make that we think are bigger than ours, mm-hmm. and therefore we must be fine. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. Blame train all aboard. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> yeah. No, we're 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 bad for that. But you've mentioned Revelation twenty one, and I'll say twenty two as well, enough that I think we should just um, read it. Yeah, just read a little bit anyway. I I think the part that maybe we should read it as a hope for tomorrow, and then that should be the way we come to a conclusion. Yeah, uh, I think to me this section at the beginning of chapter twenty two is kind of. Uh, what I would point to as sort of the, the hope for tomorrow, and that is where it says, The angel showed me a river of life-giving water, life-giving water, shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces twelve crops of fruit, bearing its fruit in each month. The tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. And to me, you know, why that stands out as being really relevant and exemplary of the way that God rules from this throne is that God in Christ is constantly giving life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we thought that when Christ gave his own life on the cross, that that was all the life that he had to give. But it just never stopped. It just never stopped. turned out that 
that this is the one who is the source of all life. And so if Christ is giving life in, the, in this ultimate image of, of the universe, the creation, the new heaven and the new earth, is continuously giving life so that everything else can flourish. I mean, fruit in every season and leaves that heal the nations. If, and shouldn't we live like that? If we were created in the image of our Creator, mm. and if we who call ourselves followers of Christ truly follow Christ, yeah. then for us to flourish, we must be creating and giving life. Yeah. And in a sacrificial way. Right. And it's not about it's not about like, well, it doesn't matter because eventually Christ's gonna come anyway. It, I mean, there's, there has, there is. I think what I hear you saying and what I'm feeling is there's some enlightened self-interest. Yeah. If we want to be the human beings that Christ has shown us how to be, then that means self-sacrificial love, with the belief and the hope and the trust that actually, when we give of ourselves, there is more for us to draw from than if we didn't. In fact, if we give everything, there would still be more because the same power that was in Christ is in us. Mm -hmm. We believe that as Christians, or we say we believe that as Christians. So there is hope. Yes. As far as humans have fallen, there is hope. There is hope. And we'll leave you with that hope. Have a great week. Peace.